0: Hi, it's Thursday afternoon, back from college. Let me, uh, I found uh, a couple of people responded positively to my appeals yesterday, I guess you'd call it, and uh, I was sponsor for today, although I'm all screwed up in terms, <coughs> in terms of um, order, so none of this matters. I uh, will just present what I want to right now. This is from, today's sponsor is Mrs. Redder, Honey Redder. Connie Boehm, as we know her in Baltimore. <laughs> I knew her parents very, very, very well. I used uh, sit next to her father for many, many years in Schulb. And um, this is in honor of her husband's birthday today. This is Simco birthday today. Very nice. Okay? So, uh, <clears throat> it's very classy to dedicate a podcast for a birthday. That's a <clears throat> very intellectual kind of thing. Now, I'm going to mix together a whole bunch of different things. But it doesn't matter. Since... Of uh, the rhetorics are associated with Salma market that made me start thinking about food anyway. I happened to be working on an idea, uh, somebody was thinking about, but I didn't reject it in terms of a bio. And it's Pesach around the corner, and all this came together, uh, in my mind <coughs> today, thinking about um red and white wine, as you all know. Uh, there's a traditional Pesach, you're supposed to have red wine, and at the same time. There's many who say uh, that don't use red wine uh, because it might help the guy with the Alil Uh My father, O'Shaom, had a good, very good sense of humor, but some things you did not joke about. It. I remember when I was a kid, I said, "That's a red wine that looks like blood. He said, that's not funny. Because, I mean, it's like really serious. Because in Eastern Europe where he lived, <coughs> and elsewhere, uh, very recently, 1800s, early 1900s, Uh, There were all these blood libels in which they said that the Jews are are killing people using the blood for Pesach in different ways. Uh, The the famous or notorious tongue, And uh, consequently, like in my house, they always never used red wine. Of course, to be perfectly honest, when we were growing up, you didn't have no wine. You just had like Shapiro's or Kedem or something like that, the Malaga. So that's like black or something. Uh, Today we live in Feinschmecker time, so there's a million different types of kosher wines. But <clears throat> then it wasn't so Negea. But I do remember some people took the trouble because of the to try to get red wine. And my father never approved of that, which is, as I said, before, an Eastern European sensibility. Uh, I used to think that, um, you know, blood libels is something from long ago. Uh, a number of years ago, I came across a... Uh, who was it? Somebody who referenced the... Uh, Correspondence between the Emma Bonim Rabbi Taitel, and his son. He had a son who, in the 30s, I think it was, went to Slovakia, which is most unusual. He's an Ungarisheth, Oberland rabbi, whose father had a yeshiva in in Pestiani in in, in Slovakia, and he went to learn Litvish yeshivas, maybe because he knew Rabbi Ruderman, maybe for other reasons, whatever. And somebody published uh, the correspondence. Maybe it was Rabbi Oberlander, possibly, in in, uh, Budapest published a correspondence between the father and the son. And I remember, this is like in the 30s, and the son is saying something along the lines, Oh, and this little town over here near it was recently Ali last Tom. I never even heard of it. They popped up all the time, more than you would admit, and uh, this is as late as the 30s. Uh, more than we know. But the ones we know are big. Now, um, this is all based on the idea that the Jews have such kind of rituals, uh, uh, how should I put it? It's an interesting kind of phenomenon, this uh, blood libel, because the guy who wrote the famous book on it was Gavin Langmuir, who's not Jewish. There was a Canadian. I forget the title of it. And he was interested as a guy. He was interested as a historian because what you had was what he called chimerical anti-Semitism, meaning <clears throat> you're blaming the Jews for something that's never been seen. It's a chimera. That's different than, what shall I say? Blaming a group for the action of one, that's also wrong. But that, you already hear. <clears throat> Let's see, one Jewish guy cheated you. I'm making it up. I blame all Jews as cheaters. See, that's a, that that's that kind of racism. But if you that you can hear, a guy got ripped off, a guy got hurt. But but once you do all, but, to blame people for something that no one has ever seen, because you know and I know. There never was such a thing as blood and elitist dominoes. That's that's ridiculous. So, And nevertheless, it it, it grabbed such a power in the imagination that appeared and reappeared. Fascinated Professor Langmuir, which he wrote about in great detail. I might point out that when the Jews in the Middle Ages suffered these accusations, what did they do? They went to the Pope. (laughs) They went to the Pope in Rome. And they said, listen, you don't like the Jews, but you know, this is baloney. And the popes repeatedly send out a letter saying it's baloney. So I'll say it again. It's the pope. Right? I think the first pope, if I remember, in the time of, of Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor in the 1200s, he gathered together a collection of um, Mishamudim, Jews who had formerly been Jewish and now became Christians, Catholics. Real real Catholics. And he got them together in some place, maybe it was a castle <clears throat> in Italy or something, and he asked them, he said, is this true? And they said, no, listen, Judaism is stupid. That's why we left. Judaism had a lot of disgusting things. It's a bad religion, so forth. But they don't do Dalila's Dom. That they don't do. And starting with that pope, all the others, you know, uh, backed it up. But you know something? The anti Semitism is so much that people used to say they bribed the pope. I, ah, you're a Catholic, say, so how can you believe that? <clears throat> Pogina de Bora, you know. It's a cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, we follow the Pope. On the other hand, when it comes to the Jews, if he said anything positive about the Jews, Territ says it was paid off. That's how it got shakua um, uh, in the geisha mentality. And that's why a Pesach was always a problem. Uh, moreover, uh, the, Moreover, I was thinking because of what we were Uh, Talking about the other day, I was going to do this anyway Uh, There was a famous uh, The person I was thinking of doing Was Rabbi Yosef Shmuel Blach I'm sure most of you never heard of And uh, he was a rabbi in Vienna In the 19th century Part of this is because Last week I did that rabbi in Florence, Italy And When I did that A few days after I did it, I got the book on the subject From Professor Schechter I think her name is about the Jews in Italy in the 1800s. And she has a lot on anti-Semitism. It was interesting. And uh, for some reason, she really spread her net wide, Talk a lot about anti-Semitism, which she certainly did. And that made me think about these kind of phenomenon of anti-Semitism around Europe. And she mentioned some of the famous cases um, in the 1800s and early 1900s. And, and now it's Pesach, I want to, to say something about that. <coughs> uh, the Bohm families from Hungary. There was a famous case in 1882, called Tisa Eslar. That's a town. Uh, the Bohm Chani parents knew this story very well. Uh, where they accused uh, people in the Hungarian courts of, uh, I guess it was killing somebody or something like that, uh, a, a, a maid or something, for use for the matzah, use your blood for the matzah, Dalila's down, in other words. This is in a modern civilized country called Hungary, which was, at the time I'm talking about in the 1880s, was the golden age of Hungarian Jewry, as Franz Josef. The Hungarian Jews had a good, the from and the not from, they had a good. The government was very liberal as far as the Jews are concerned. They were not liberal as far as others, but they were liberal as far as the Jews are concerned. And the Jewish religion, was just fine, and you had yeshivas flourishing all over the place. and non-Hasidic, overlanders, unterlanders. Hungary was chugging away. The Jews in Hungary then even became very rich, and, uh, you know, big machers in the economy, and so forth and so on. In the middle of all this, somebody accused the whole thing of Lilos was in a court case. And <clears throat> I think, the, if I remember correctly, the first round the bad guys won. had to, to go through the second round to, to, to get the truth out. And it was so bad that there were going to be pogroms and riots. And I remember, the only thing is, the government in Hungary at that time was, um, uh, I would say, non-anti-Semitic and was very much law and order. Uh, what was the name? Tisa. Yeah. There was a father and son. Between the two of them, they were prime ministers of Hungary like 40 years. Uh there was a and István Tisa. And they said like this, they are not going to be any pogroms We're hungry. period. It's not happening. And they called out the police, and they called out the guard, the National Guard, and the mobs that were going to form saw that, they're, they're you know, that's not going to be fun. It's only fun if you can beat up the helpless Jews. You know, are not going to fight back. That's fun. If there's going to be consequences, and people crack your skull too, and the cops are coming to arrest you, then it's not fun, and the, and the riots were called off. That just goes to show you something. But as late as that, you had these kinds of things going on. Now, one of the reasons for this is as follows. Um, The Jews, and this is a a big part of the story. The Jews in Europe in general got their civil rights in the 1800s. Let's say, for example, between 1800 and 1870, to use rough figures. More like 1815, 1870. Each country in its own time, you know, England in 1859, the French at the time of the French Revolution, in Germany it was more like 1869, in Italy was like 1859, and so forth and so on. And by the time the process was over, it simply became a fact that all the countries in Europe had passed laws that the Jews can have complete and total citizenship and civil rights, with the exception of Russia. Obviously, Russia is a gigantic exception, but nevertheless, Germany, Austria, Italy... France, England, of course, Holland and Belgium, Scandinavia, all those countries, you know, gave the Jews complete civil rights, which was brand new. Now, in some countries, after the Jews got the civil rights, came a reaction, a blowback, because a lot of the government felt very bad about it. And second of all, the Jews will buy up everything. And third of all, we don't want them, you know, like, so to speak, sitting in our restaurant. And so they began a movement right after the Jews got the civil rights, anti but since it's the eighteen seventies, because they got they finished their process in so excuse me, since we're talking about the eighteen seventies, so they didn't feel comfortable uh, making the case in purely religious terms, because Europe was becoming secularizing. And so they, instead they made it in racial terms. This is why you get the term anti-Semitism instead of anti-Judaism. If it's anti-Judaism, it's a religious thing. But if it's anti Semitism, it's a race thing. And as we all know, Hitler took it to the full logical conclusion, and by Hitler, even if you converted, they still killed you because you're Jewish. By race. Okay, another category. By race. So this all happened in the 1870s, and there was a huge petition signed by all VIPs in Germany, let's be Kaiser, take the civil rights way back from the Jews. It never happened, but the Jews didn't know that. Same thing in France. I would say in general, the Catholic Church in many, many countries, Austria, Hungary, France, and elsewhere, Italy, by the way, was pushing very hard to anti-Semitism. The Catholic Church was very mm, offended theologically by the notion that the European countries, which had always ident- self-identified as Christian commonwealths, particularly Catholic commonwealths, should now make such a hill of Christianity that they would even allow Jews, who after all, to them, killed Yashka, to them, that they should be free and equal partners in the state. Before you dump on him, imagine from a firm perspective, if they had a halachic state and they would give up their, Zara, you know, equal rights. People wouldn't like that either. That's how they looked at it. And so the result was that there was a period uh, from, I would say, 1870, more or less down to Hitler, but particularly, let's say, the 1870s until around the First World War, in which there was a, a pretty strong uh, anti-Semitic move, set of movements I mean they had international congresses of anti-Semitism and they had political parties which called themselves the anti-Semitic party there was one in Hungary Istotzi, uh, I think was the guy's name there was a party in parliament, you get it? like in America you have the Democrats, the Republicans what if you had a party called the anti-Semitic party? Chas they should ever make an anti-Semitic party in America I'm sorry to say they would get a lot of votes I don't want to even test if I'm right I think you know what I mean you know, I I, I would, uh, oh boy, it wouldn't be funny. It would not be funny. Um, but there, there was nothing stopping you. And so in Germany, there was a party that ran for votes and got seats in parliament in the Reichstag, uh, called the anti-Semitic party. And in Austria and in Hungary, it was really bad. Okay? Now, I'll repeat. It never happened what they wanted. It never happened that they actually succeeded in undoing the civil rights. But they came close. And eventually, when Hitler came to power, that's when it happened. Hitler coming in a different context, but lemaisa he carried out what the anti-Semites had been preaching for um, since 1870. But as you all know, he went vicar. He said, forget the civil rights. Let's just kill them. You know, this is the environment. In this environment, don't be surprised... If there should be a revival in literary form of a lot of anti Semitic literature. And one of the pieces, not the only piece, one of the big pieces was the Alilas Dom. And in order for it to sound that, uh, you know, not simply a matter of racial prejudice, but that it's really scientifically true in Iskahalism, people looked for sources that would back up the idea that although the Jews won't admit it, it is a basic part of Judaism. To use blood in some fashion or another, right? The but how are you gonna do that? You know, it doesn't say in the Gemara. So how are you gonna do that? There was a, the answer is that they relied usually on an old book that had been out of publication out of date that had been published in the early seventeen hundreds um, by this guy who was a real schmo. His Name was Eisenmenger, Johannes Eisenmenger. It was a guy, a German, and he was a professor, actually, lecturer of Semitic languages. So he learned to read and write Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic and stuff like that in Germany in the 1600s. He died when he was 50 years old. He wasn't old, but he caused a lot of trouble before that. And it really bothered him. He saw, he did two things, Eisenmenger. On the one hand, he saw that there were a number of Christians converting to Judaism, which really offended him, because he visited Amsterdam, and he stayed there for a while. And in Amsterdam, there was a religious freedom. It was the only place. Do you remember an Avram Ben Avram story? He ran away in Amsterdam to convert. It was the only place you could do that. Switched from Christian to Jewish. And he said, I'm going to try to write something and show the fellow Christians that Judaism is disgusting and, second of all, dangerous. That way, nobody will convert to Judaism. Maybe I'll get the Jews to convert my way. And uh, he did something very insidious. He buddied up with rabbis exactly like you find today in some of these news items that we see recently, you know, that the Arab guy claimed to be Jewish or the Christian couple, missionary couple claimed to be in Kolel somewhere. Remember all this? Recently, you know, you find the unmasking of a bunch of guyim that are infiltrated for whatever reason uh, from headquarters. I think in Yoshalayim and B'nai Brak and Lakewood, places like that. Each one for a different reason. And, uh, in the case of, and and you know, isn't it true that they married a girl now it turned out she got divorced. She didn't need a divorce because the husband wasn't even Jewish. You read these stories. So everybody does it for whatever reason. In the case of Eisenmenger, he was a particular shmo. He said, I want to grab as much knowledge of shahs and poshsum as I can and then use it against the Jews. So he spent many years butting up, hanging around shoals, yeshivas schmoozing with rabbis, it was like a rabbi leader, people like that. And they fell for it because there were honestly Christians who were interested in Judaism and were honestly asking questions and things like this. um, And they weren't on their guard to be careful what they say. and probably shot their mouth off. It reminds you very much of that story in the Gemara, which is in the Tosefta, and I think Baba Kama. Uh, one second. Ah, uh, here it is. It's in the Gemara. It's in Baba Kama, uh, thirty-eight. Uh, it's a little bit different. I think the Sifri says more. Like I was saying it uh, somewhere in the in uh, Dvarim. But anyway, it says that the Romans sent. The Romans sent two uh, soldiers, I guess. Spies, I think they can, and they say, teaches your Torah. Um, it's not clear, did they come with an official thing from the government? Why would he send two sergeants? But anyway, uh, sounds more like they said they pretended they want to be Jewish. And they taught him, and then when they left, they basically said, We're FBI, <laughs> Roman FBI. We went through the whole Torah and it's himis. No, everything you see in the Torah is fine Makes sense, it's logical Except um, This discrimination That if, you know Our ox, the geish ox, of the Jewish ox Gotta pay, the Jewish ox, the ox don't have to pay No, it's discriminatory as we would say today Alright? But the only thing is, other than that, everything else is fine. And since there's only one out of the whole thing, so uh, we won't tell, right? So in other words, let's put it this way. Obviously, when they taught these two guys, which I think doesn't mean they came on an official mission, but uh, Rabbi Gamaliel was very circumspect, in what he taught him. he taught them in a way, they wouldn't have a blowback came in the time of Eisenmenger, he was hanging around uh, these kind of Jews, them kind of Jews, and he probably shot their mouths off against Christianity. And he learned of the whole Shas and everything. I'm serious. And then he published a book called Judaism Un- Unmasked, and, Untekes uh, Judentums. And basically, he said, What I'm going to do is just give you what the Gemara says. Now, you'd be surprised. You'd think, I oh, can't learn. He has marshals there, he has tosos, he has everything. It's quite remarkable. It's not what you think. And he doesn't forge things. He just puts them in a certain way and make it look very bad. And he's the one who said, uh, Look, when it comes to Alil Azdam, this is It happened in this year, it happened in that year, it happened in that year. In Ichanami, the Catholic Church, it says it wasn't true. But I'll tell you one thing, this is what he writes. And I'm just giving the way it happened. Isn't it interesting that they all happened around Passover time? So what's he implying? You get it implying that the Jews do do it. And, uh oh, back in those days the Jews tried to get the book confiscated, but it didn't work. And that became the Bible for the anti-Semites. He died in 1704, so give it another 100, 170 years. You know, and then they were using it. And as a result... Different versions of this book in German popped up and led to a huge revival of um, not only anti Semitism, but of Alila's Dom cases, uh, Pesach time, particularly, as I said before, in Hungary, in uh, Bohemia later on, the Hilsner trial, in Russia, we all know about the Baylis case, and there were many other small cases that's pretty shocking, all throughout, especially in Eastern Germany, you used to hear about it and places like that. And you couldn't persuade people that it wasn't true. That's why I say there was a strong thing in my father's generation, you don't fool around with red wine and, and you don't make jokes about this kind of business because many people have been murdered and families in Jewish can be destroyed because of this. Uh, there was a, a famous uh, Catholic priest who was a professor of Jewish studies and similar things in the University in Prague. His name was Rowling. And he was full of it. And he wrote a book called The Talmud Yuda, The Jew of the Talmud, in which he copies out of Eisenmenger, but he fudges the quotations. Eisenmenger gives the the real thing. This guy, you know, changed it around to make it look even worse. And the Jews are committing all these kind of crimes now, especially of time. And there was a gigantic wave of anti-Semitism that swept through Austria-Hungary. So this would be, you know, in in the second half of the 1800s and the jewish communities didn't know what to do because meanwhile they got their civil rights and you know like in hungary or austria the emperor franz was not going to take it back but on the other hand you're getting newspaper articles and this that you know, the catholic uh, priests are carrying going it wasn't so simple you see it wasn't simply now we got the civil rights everything's great it was not great and uh the jewish community was run by all these uh, stick in the mud you know, richy-rich types who, I guess, meant well, but were very cautious in how they dealt with anti-Semitism. And so what they did was they got famous Christian professors to testify that the books are not true, they're not accurate. And they did do so. Delitz was a famous guy. Herman Strach, if you're old enough, you'll remember his introduction to the Talmud. Once upon a time was sold in Hebrew bookstores. He was a Christian guy. He actually was interested in missionary stuff. But chutz from that, he was a friend of the Jews, and he did testify in a lot of these cases uh, in favor of Judaism. Not in favor of Judaism, in favor of the truth. He said these quotations are false and things like that. And then the Jewish community could say, well, we got you know recognized experts to say the book's not real, so we can't control goes Victor right uh, You know, we put our word out. And anyway, the more you make out of this, the more publicity you get, and that's not good. And so it was getting bigger and bigger. It's like in the early 1880s. And every time Pesach comes along, people got double scared. You know. And um, it took a guy, a, a, a little rabbi. It was a guy, Yosef Shmuel Blach. It was a Galaxianer honor from a small town. And like I mentioned last week with Robert Margolis, a lot of these rabbis had the same uh, tra- trajectory. He started out in Galicia. Um, they went through cheder, yeshivas. Uh, sometimes they learned with big people. This guy I'm talking about, our hero, Yosef Shmuel Bloch. he learned in, in Lemberg with the, with the uh, what do you call it, with um Eshev, who mentioned the Minas chubas. And he learned in other yeshivas. In those days, in Hungary and in Galicia, I'll tell you something funny. You could learn like uh, chulin, when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, and take pechinas in the in the other day and get a, and get a smicha. Uh, it wasn't the kind of smicha necessarily that a community would hire you. Maybe yes, maybe no. But you wanted something outside of Galicia and outside of Hungary. It was a very good smicha. It was perfectly usable. And what many people, oh many some people did, including this hero of ours, was. They got their smich at a very young age, and then they went to Germany or something like that, and uh, did their Lemurichol, and eventually got a, a PhD somewhere. Because there were dozens of universities in Germany and Switzerland, and it wasn't that hard to do a PhD. I told you, it's not what you think. It wasn't that hard to do a PhD back in those days. It's more or less like a master's program in America, but it had the prestige of a PhD program, and uh, it was a very interesting system, that German system he didn't go until you are ready for graduate school but whatever the case is and he got his doctorate and then he was looking for a job because you're not going to get a decent stella in central europe including germany austria hungary unless you have a phd or in the if it's a from community it's all old boy network you know that no you're not getting a stella because you got to be related to somebody it was old boy network that's how it went all the the positions in hungary and in those places was Protexia, total Protexia. So if you didn't have the right connections, and this guy was just a Tomahama from a poor family, and so he got a job here and there. It was a rubby. In this place, this place, he ended up having a schulz, I remember, in, um, in the suburbs of Vienna. No, there's not a rich congregation or anything like that. And not, in Vienna, there was no such thing as an orthodox in mind. It was all, by law, it all was part of one thing, so the super were in the shift Shul. This guy was not. He had his own uh, I would say, you know, a, a more poor synagogue. And he couldn't stand this this business with the all. There, since it's all full of it. And he published, he got all the Jews angry at him. I'll say again, he got the Jews angry at him, because he published a public thing in the paper saying, this Professor Rowling, who's writing these bad translations, and uh, what's the right word? Deliberate falsifications uh, against Judaism and the Talmud And you're a professor too I say that you're a public phony and a liar You can't even read one line in Hebrew You're totally full of it As a matter of fact, you belong in jail Because you testify sometimes in court On the basis of your being an expert in these matters And you weren't, so you're a liar this is a perjury So not only you shouldn't be a professor in the university You should be in jail Now this is strong language for a Jew to use way back then, especially against a guy who was considered very choshev and a big uh, bucky in Jewish matters, and it was a Catholic priest, a professor at the University of Prague. Uh, When he published his book against Judaism, the Catholic Church gave out 40,000 copies for free, you understand? You know, and had all these quotes from the Talmud and from the Midrash, it sounds like you know what we talk about. Here's a guy publicly saying, you're full of it, Mommish and, and I dare you to challenge me in court. Basically, he insulted him so heavily that the guy has to, if he wants to keep his name, he has to sue, sue for libel. I welcome the fact you sue for libel. The Jewish community was freaking out. Who asked you? Who made you the representative of the Jews? you are going to make the anti-Semitism worse. It's going to be a horrible and, you know, you're a loose cannon. You didn't follow the Federation and all the rest of it. And he said, you're all full of it. This guy is making ash and blunter from all of us. And you're letting it go. And so you had a fight like we have from time to time. between those who say we should give an activist kind of response to the anti-Semitic stuff versus those who say it's smarter to work behind the scenes and, you know, shah still and so on and so And anyway, the government is on our side and so on and so forth. And uh, this Rowling, the guy he accused of being a phony uh, had to sue because otherwise the university would say he called you a liar. Why don't you do something about it? And uh, he got himself a very hush of a lawyer. So the Jewish community f- double freaked out because he got a good lawyer. So, Bal Chab they had to hire Rabbi Blach, a very good lawyer. Two guy, you know, they got a guy, Patai, the Jews got a guy, Cop. Big, you know, top of the line. Let's put it this way. Both of them got a hefty fee. And then it became a lawyer thing. Now, there's two highly professional lawyers. And what the Jewish guy's lawyer did was he said, okay, let's do our due diligence. Get all the uh, translations that that the uh, guy has in the book. Let's take them in front of big experts. Uh, see where, where the forgeries are, where where the uh, twistings are, the bad translations, all the rest of it. And uh, and then we'll go to court. And that's what he did. He hired a whole bunch of people, experts. Goyim, of course, has to be Goyim, who can read Hebrew and know the Talmud and this and that and the other. And they collected all the areas where he changed the words or he mistranslated on purpose or he put in you know, in such a way, put a comma in the wrong place to make it seem this. Uh, to, what's the right word to to misrepresent? And so forth. And uh, went through the legal process. He said, you know, get, the court should get what to call uh, uh, professional experts, sworn experts. And the court should ascertain, you know, whether there's anything like this. And uh, each side went at it. And the Jews, meanwhile, were freaking majorly. And this rabbi, he wasn't scared of nobody. <laughs> He said, I can't wait. The, because the press was all over him. He said, I can't wait till the day in court. I'm going to smear the floor with this guy. He's such a liar. And, you know, the chief rabbi right manager said, shut up. Don't talk like that. And he said, I'll say whatever I want. Well, guess what? The day of the trial, they withdrew the the suit. <laughs> you get it? The day of the trial, the guy pulled out. And the reason he pulled out is because the guy said like this. When I'm in court, I'm going to give him a Hebrew book to read. And I'll prove in front of him. Call the Ada that the guy... Can't even tell upside down, inside out. He knows nothing. And I, like I said, I'll make ash and it from him. And it was true. It was the guy was really a big liar. And so the result was uh, a victory for the Jews. Then, as always happens, then the Federation suddenly gets, oh, we were behind you all the time. <laughs> you know Then he got all these telegrams many years ago uh, when, when the Hebrew College here in Baltimore, the library was still alive, I remember I read long, long, long ago, Bloch wrote his uh, Erinnerung, his uh, memoirs. It was translated, I think, in the 30s into English. It was very interesting. I mean, I was young when I read this. And he had all the telegrams, like from Ralph Hildesheimer, because for a while he learned by Hildesheimer when he had the yeshiva in Isaac shot. And from this raw, and this Rav, and what's his name, the base Yitzchak, they wouldn't even look at him. Now that he became a big deal, and he made a Kiddish Hashem, and all of a sudden, everybody wants to own you. You know, that, that's how it goes. I'm just, that's a, a clear thing from that time. Now, does that mean that the alittle Islamism went away? It does not. Uh, matter of fact, this Rabbi Bloch, after it's all over, the community said again, okay, you won now, shut up, don't make any more uh, trouble. And uh, he tried to become a professor, and the Jewish community blocked it. He says it's too controversial. You know how the federations are. You know, it's, it's what they are and uh he said i'll show you and he ran for office he ran for parliament Um, at that time this is austria-hungary the under franz joseph in the period i'm talking about in the second half of the 1800s it was a uh i won't say democracy as a monarchy but it was a constitutional monarchy in other words it was a real democratic government uh with a parliament and all that i mean the emperor had a lot of power but so did the parliament and they had real elections Now, there are areas in the Austrian Empire where the Jews were the rove of the voters, namely Galicia, (laughs) right? As I mentioned the other day, Galicia is like the eastern half of what we call the province of Galicia. There were many areas over there where the rove was Jews. Um, And he ran, now, basically, the fights were, who are you going to support in Galicia? The Polacks on the one hand, the Ukrainians on the other, this group, that group. And this guy's saying, I don't give a darn for the Polacks. I don't give a darn for the Ukrainians. They can all go to the devil. I want Jews to vote for a Jewish party. I will defend Jewish interests. Oh my, the Assembly of Jews couldn't stand that. They couldn't take that. Well, guess what? He got elected three times. He won three elections 1880s, in the 1880s, the early 90s. This is what they call in Austria Count the period of Count Tafa was the famous prime minister under Franz Josef, who was a Catholic, but he was a very pragmatic guy, and he didn't have nothing against the Jews. You know, nothing else to Jews. And from the parliament, you know, you can't get... What's the right word? You can't get sued as for libel. Uh, but that works two ways. So our hero can make all the speeches and everything like this. And uh, anytime somebody made a um, a public newspaper article or a book uh, of Dalila's Dom, he sued him in court. And I don't remember all the details. You can look it up if you're interested. It is an interesting story. I'm not doing justice to it. Uh, if you're interested, I remember... Professor Wistrich, I think that's who it was, in Hebrew University, wrote a book called The Jews in Time of France. It was a, something like that. Jews in Vienna, Time of France. He had an old chapter from Bloch. He did a nice job. Or if you want to, you can probably find online somewhere the, uh, Joseph Bloch, the uh, uh, Reminisces, the uh, memoirs. And I remember there, there was a whole canunia one, and it was a fake thing, and, and he exposed it in court. He sued him, he exposed it in court, and the liars went to jail. You know the guys who said who made up this stuff about Dalila's down. I forget exactly the details. The guys in the Gaish court, Austrian court, were found perjury and all that, and they went to jail. So uh, he was something else. And then he started a newspaper, Österreich Volksdrift, which was like, I would say something along the lines of the Jewish press, except it wasn't a from paper. It was just a Jewish paper to defend Jewish honor against all these because the. Every Pesach was the more Alinistam, and every other Yontif, you know, the, the more anti-Semitism, because uh, of free press can go both ways. It can, you, free press means the Jews can say whatever they want. Free press also means the anti-Semites can say whatever they want. <clears throat> As you and I are learning now with that doggone internet, because it's not controlled the internet. Anybody can say whatever they want. And you can find the most unbelievable anti-Semitic junk on the internet, that you know make your hair stand on end because it's there's no there's no uh, what am I talking about there's no control so you can have the big Nazis and everything else and uh, nobody's stopping you maybe now with the political correct they stop a little bit but I can tell you right now if I would say something against the Muslims it'll be cut off from the internet if I would say something against the Jews it will not be cut off on the internet I've experience with this you understand so um there's a lot of PC I the internet is really uh, you know Google and all from Jews doesn't matter you know they're self aiding Jews what can you do it's it's a, it's a shame that's how it is so this is the environment of the red wine and the white wine you know in in, in my time in in the previous century the previous century um, and there was by the way in a Domin in America I don't know if you know that or not in uh, some place in or wherever in New York State in 1920s a kid was missing and they immediately went to the rabbi. <laughs> I kid you not, uh, Mesola, Miniola, I forget where it was. Uh, just Google "blood libel in New York State 1920s" and you'll find it. And uh, they said right away, "Said, so, well, you know, where's the, where's the missing kid?" And the rabbi said, "What the heck are you talking about?" It was there a Reform rabbi too, so he's like really freaked out. In the end, they found the kid. There, you know, he wasn't missing. It was just it wasn't there. They found him. Uh, so this is the kind of business in which people labor. Now, the trouble is, like I said before, Jews shoot their mouth off and say dumb things. In the case of Eisenmenger, if, he wouldn't have learned three-quarters of what he learned if he didn't hang around Jews in Amsterdam and Poland who said, Yashka this, the guy am that, and so on and so forth. It had no, no, no sense. They knew that he's a guy converting to Judaism. In other words, that's what they believed. But like Yisro, the Rosh about by Yisro, you know, you don't, Ma, whatever the language is, you don't say things like that you understand you don't insult people's relatives like that but you know jews are stupid Then you know, what can you do jews are stupid and they shoot their mouth off and i might keep you know uh, might have common sense but i'm a hostage to the next guy or the next ruler doesn't have any <coughs> common sense in the 19th century the other big deal besides the was he called the protocols of zion you know the jews run the world and control everything one of the main places they got that was from a Jew, from Disraeli. Benjamin Disraeli was the Prime Minister of England, uh, was born Jewish. His father had a fight with the Shoal, and so the father had the children converted to Christianity as a bar mitzvah, at the bar mitzvah present. Okay, Can you imagine what it's like for a kid, for a time of bar mitzvah, until then he's a Jewish, had a Jewish education, and now he flipped, and now he's a Christian. Tell me what that does in terms of your self-identity. And the father didn't convert, by the way. So you're living in home with a Jewish father and Jewish mother, but you yourself are Christian. It's, it's, it's a screwball situation. And this really grew up, you know, screwed up in terms of his identity. Deep down, he had a Jewish pride, but it was also uh, twisted by his conversion to Christianity that, you know, he couldn't express it in a normal way, and express it in weird ways. He wrote, used to write a lot of novels. Uh, but because he was not Jewish, legally, he was a Christian. Legally. That's why he could run for office and eventually become prime minister of England. And you know, and he must have been a genius to overcome all the obstacles in the time of the 1800s in a country like England where they didn't like Jews. I mean, they were better than elsewhere, but they wouldn't get a Jew to be public office. Now's not the time to go through the career of the Israeli. But... Um, and and I'll say it again, England was pretty good compared to the others. Matter of fact, one of the most fa- matter of fact, one of the most famous blood libels was Damascus, 1840, as Montefiore. I think I did a podcast on Montefiore. You you listen to that, where they accused the Jews in Damascus of killing a Christian priest, of a Frenchman for using the blood, and you couldn't persuade it wasn't true. And the felt believed it. That's why we didn't cross. The news, the, the French said it really happened. You know what I said? The French ambassador, on. they said the Jews really killed him for Alilas Dam. Uh, and in France, the government said, we believe it. I, I, I just want you to understand, suppose, God forbid, we came in the news and the President of the United States said like this, you know, we found out the Alilas Islam was really true. Holy Toledo. You know, I mean, good grief. And when the French said it, everybody said it. Uh, The the German states believed in it. And I mean, can you imagine what it was like to be a Jew at that time? And in England, the British ambassador or consul in in, uh, Damascus believed it. It's like crazy. The only guy who kept his head when everybody else was falling for this stuff was uh, the foreign minister, Lord Palmerston. Very famous guy in British history. Lord Palmerston. He was a wild and crazy guy. And I wouldn't tell you to go imitate his love life. But he was a friend of the Jews. And he said, this story is a lie from top to bottom. And the fact that the French and the Germans believe it doesn't mean nothing. They're all stupid. You know, everybody knows that all the Europeans, except the English, are stupid. This is a famous thing The King of <laughs> the king of France said once to Palmerston, Louis-Philippe. If I were not a Frenchman, I would want to be an Englishman. And Palmerston said... If I were not an Englishman, I wouldn't want to be an Englishman. <laughs> you know, he had no time for the foreigners. So the fact that they believed that was dumb, you know, was the opposite. And when the British, I remember when the British ambassador, the consul, said he believes it, he fired him. You know what I'm saying? He fired him. And he saw it through to the end. He sent Montefiore and all over there to prove that it was false. So England wasn't so bad. But still, they didn't want somebody like a, a somebody born Jewish to rise to be prime minister. And Disraeli really did it anyway. I mean, his wife was a Jewish, and he was a Christian and all the rest of it. But deep down, it's now it's not time to go into it. Deep down, the Israeli had a uh, Jewish, what's the right word, Um Yid, he did, and never came out. He wanted to make a Jewish state in Israel. I'll tell you the truth. It's uh, not so well known. He let his guard down once he told Lord Darby, oh, we could bring in like a Zionist movement and and the land. And, you know, but then he, then he shut up. Uh, and he wrote a b- bunch of novels. That's one of the way he uh, became famous, by writing a bunch of novels. And in many of his novels, he's like, the Jews run the world. The Jews control the world. Because he was friends with Rothschild, he figured like they run the world. And that gave ammunition in Germany and other places to the anti-Semitism, so the Protocols of Zion. I mean, it's from a novel by Disraeli. He made it up. But they ran with the ball. Read Hitler. You'll see. Hitler says, one, two. I admire he told the truth. That was Lord Beaconsfield, Disraeli. So, we suffer from idiots. You see, if you're Jewish, you suffer from idiots. The guys that talk to Eisenmenger cause a lot of trouble, and the guys that you know talk to the you know the Israeli types cause cause a lot of trouble. And it's not them who pay the price. It's the poor yid in a village in Hungary or in Poland where if he buys red wine and pays off, next thing you know, he gets his head split in. Uh, it's, it's it's a crazy time in the world uh, we're living in, and. Uh, we haven't seen the end of it because the anti-Semite is popping up all the time. A few years ago, not that you need to remember this, the foreign minister of Syria said the Jews use blood in making the hamantash. So he obviously got it wrong, you know, in the pipeline. You get it? He got it wrong wrong in the pipeline. Uh, And nobody said anything That oh, how dare you say this? I didn't see America protest or anything. This is under Obama, I remember. I didn't see anybody protest. I didn't see anybody make a big deal. Uh, because deep down, there's a lot of this kind of feeling. It, it, it's, it's Mama's crazy. So these are the thoughts that come to mind when we organize ourselves for Pesach. And um, this Rabbi Bloch, by the way, was there for many, many years. He died in the 1920s. He ran that newspaper, the, the Austrian Weekly, the osterachs and, uh, and his career, I would say this, by way of closing, he really believed in the Austrian Empire. Uh, the he lived in Austria-Hungary, like uh, like Mrs. Bo, uh, like Mrs. Radder's parents, and I think Simba is also from Hungary. I don't know. Uh, and I'll say it again: if you're talking about the late 1800s, early 1900s, in some respects, it was a golden age. Although I tell you again, there's a lot of anti-Semitism running around. It's not as golden as people remember, but you know, memories are like that. But from the legal point of view, the government was... I'll, I'll use the word pro-Jewish. That might be a little too much. But, you know, they were fair to the Jews. This is on the Emperor Franz Joseph, And um, you had all kind of different peoples in the Austrian Empire. The Germans, the Hungarians, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Croats, the Romanians, uh, Italians, uh, Ruthenians, all kinds of groups. And wherever the Jews lived... Um, they felt they got to be nationalists for that group. So the Jews in Hungary felt, oh, you got to be super patriotic Hungarians. And the Jews in uh, Austria felt you got to be super patriotic for the German culture, excuse me, the German culture, uh, which was all baloney because when Hitler came, we know what they did to the Jews. Uh, Rabbi Bloch said like this Habdur Ali Bud, a Jew should be loyal only to Jewish and to the Austrian Empire, which protects them as Jews. You know what I'm saying? He said, in other words, I'm more patriotic than everybody because I don't believe in the Hungarians. I don't believe in the Czechs. I believe in the emperor and the imperial government, which is protecting the Jews. And so I don't identify with any of these other groups. I identify with the Jews. You see? I identify with the Jews. And the Jews should identify with the Jews. You're loyal to the government and you're patriotic. He honestly, he really was. Precisely because the government is treating us okay. You know, how does he say it in Latin? Uh, Ubi, bene, ibi, patria. If this is a good place, then that's my country. Right? as you earned my loyalty. You earned my loyalty. I'm totally willing to give it. But I should go, if I live in Galicia, and I should give my loyalty to the Ukrainians, I should give my loyalty to the Polacks. Why? If they have a chance, they'll mess me over. You, you get what I'm saying? Now, a lot of Jews are like this don't talk like that. You give them ammunition. Oh, so you see, the fact I'm giving ammunition shows who they really are. So why are you faking yourself out what you yourself out? And he had, I remember reading in German once a, a, a editorial for Pesach time. I wish I would remember where it was. Uh, it's probably online somewhere. They have all this stuff now online. Uh, where he says, "What do we learn from Pesach?" Is he sees Mitzrayim? One they not see of the of the Mitzrayim. He sees Mitzrayim, not the Mitzrayim. The Jew. It's a Jewish holiday for the Jewish people, and as the morale said, you know, Kol or lo yochobo. Kol ben nechor lo yochobo. What's the reason for that? It's our own thing. And on Pesach, of all times, we should celebrate our own thing. It doesn't mean you're against anybody else. You're not hurting anybody else. You're not out to, to harm anyone else. But Pesach happened to Calais. Well, it didn't happen to somebody else. As I point out many times, there wasn't a liberation of all the slaves in Egypt. There was a liberation of one group. That's why, who is it that the Erev got out when they got out? They said, listen, the door's open for five minutes. The Jews are getting out. I'm getting on the boat. <laughs> you know, I'm getting on the boat and getting the heck out of here with the Jews. Then they caused all the trouble and it goes up. But I'm saying, I don't blame them for wanting to get out because then once it's over and the Jews leave, the Egyptians say we back to slavery and everybody go back to the salt mines. The Jews are out, but everybody goes back to the salt mines. Why should somebody want to stay in salt mines? You know, in Israel, they have X number of people and I don't blame them uh, that... When they airlifted the Ethiopian Jews in the, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s, some, Goyim, you know, sneaked on board because they like like, I want to get the heck out of Ethiopia. It's a civil war going on. Uh, a is shechting B, B is shechting A. I started up with dark lahazik. Everybody's getting killed. I'd rather go to a country like Israel where there's no war. Not inside the country. Moreover, the electricity works. The, the toilet works. Everything works. You know, uh, I, I want to do this, and I just saw in the paper the other day, maybe yesterday, and maybe today or the day before, where it said something along the lines, "It's it now. It's a plus to to be Jewish." You know, so if you have something along the lines, if you have Jewish blood, meaning if you're Jewish, then then that's what everybody in in um, Ukraine wants to have now. They want to claim they're Jewish. They can get out of there. I understand why nobody wants to be in a in a war zone, but it's kind of funny. Ordinarily, they'd say, damn Jew, and anybody who's Jewish is this, that, and the other. And uh, now everybody says, that was a revive. You get it? I repeat, I understand why they did it, but that doesn't mean they have to honor what they're saying. And so we have a whole bunch of questions of identity and uh, ceremonies and customs, associated with Pesach, uh, some of which have to do, as I said before, with the fact that uh, Pesach is is, is, a, is a private holiday. It happened to Klai It didn't happen to anyone else. It's funny to me that we live in a time, and I understand why, that everybody wants to own Pesach. Biden, I'm sure, was going to have a Seder. Obama had a Seder. I don't think Trump had a Seder. I give him credit. You know, Trump's said, like this. My daughter has a Seder. She's Jewish. <laughs> right? I'm not Jewish. I don't have the Seder. That's a, you know, he's right. He's arms and right. It's not it's not for him. It's it's for her. Because she is a gear, geared sadic, let's say. So she, you know, she's a gear. That's fine. Um <laughs> a lot of people, you know, don't feel comfortable with that. And they say they have to be more universal. In the universalism, you end up, you know, let's put it this way. Uh, Rabbi Yosef Shmuel Blach would, would disagree. Let's let, let's leave it at that. Anyway, these are a couple ideas that we're floating through today um, as I was uh, thinking about Pesach. So Ms. Redder asked me to say a few words about Pesach in this regard. I want to wish Rabbi Simcha a Uh, Happy birthday. I ain't asking no questions how old everybody is. (laughs) I'm the group that you don't do that anymore. But I'm grateful for the sponsorship. With that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.